Well, I think my refrigerator's dying. Oh, no. I had a similar thing in England. We came back and we have a garage freezer. And we came back and it was just slightly defrosted. Everything was cold, but there was, you know, water. There was juice in the bottom of the frozen chicken bag and stuff. It's no good. No. I got sort of like this weird sense that something was wrong. I was walking by the fridge and I heard this click, click, click. Oh, that ain't right. No. And I've been thinking about ways to put a temperature sensor in there for a while. You know, it's been on my mind. And I hear this click. So I think, okay, I'm feeling it doesn't feel right. It feels like the tater tots are a little squishy, you know, shouldn't be like that. <laughs> so the wife gets up this morning and I tell her, hey, look, this is what I think's going on. Although by this point, I'd heard the compressor kick in. So it, it was working again. I thought, hmm, and it definitely was cooling down again. But here's the moment that was a victory, Alex. You know what she says to me? She's like, hey, couldn't you put a temperature sensor in there? And then we'd get historical trends at Home Assistant. The wife asked that. Yes. <laughs> what a win is that, right? That is amazing. And I was like, right, you are. So then I was like motivated, even though I was running late to get down to the studio. I was like, no, I'm going to get this set up right now because she's on board. We're getting this done. <laughs> I, you know, so I did a similar thing this week. I know you've gone Z-Wave. Uh, I actually went Zigbee. I bought a couple of the Akara sensors. Yeah. And I put a couple in the freezer and, and they're connected up to Home Assistant. Real easy. I, Time will tell how long batteries last at minus 17 Celsius, though. Okay, so you are doing battery power. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Huh. I right now am getting, after 24 hours, I am getting 54% battery remaining. <laughs> oh, oh, my. No. And there are two little Duracell lithium batteries. Two of them. Little lithium batteries. So <laughs> I don't know how long this thing is going to last. My kitchen fridge sensor is at 100%, and the freezer is at 98 and they were both powered up at exactly the same time yesterday so oh we'll see hmm. we'll see yeah i'm hoping that mine stays at 54 percent. you know like it just like the sensor just got a big drop because of the, the cold who knows uh but yeah the z-wave does seem to be making it through the walls of the fridge which i just wasn't so sure about and you know i thought this would be a great way the wife was completely right like i i gotta know because to pull this fridge out First of all, it's like built into the cupboards of the RV and it's bolted in. So it has, it'd have to be, so I'd have to take it to a shop. They'd have to have a couple of guys remove this fridge. Then I'd have to have an RV tech come over or a, a fridge tech come over and try to repair it. And if they can't repair that fridge, they have to remove the slide or remove the windshield and take the fridge out that way because oh, it's bigger no. than the door is wide. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> and it's just a regular old re residential fridge they put in these things. It's not like it's been like prepared to go down the road or anything. It's just, it's just a house fridge that they like. Hey, people like bigger fridges. So let's put a let's put a house fridge in the RV. You'd have to take it out <laughs> the windscreen. Oh my god! Yeah, that's like the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. So I'm gonna watch it carefully for a bit. I may even get like a battery pack and just try to run a flat USB cord into there. When I was Googling online for this, people were really kind of coming up with uh, pretty clever DIY solutions for this, where essentially they come up with a really thin cable that goes to a remote sensor that they mount inside the fridge, and then they have the transmitter and the power source outside the fridge. You could do that with an ESP, an ESP board pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah, that would be pretty great. And then perhaps I'd build my own cloud after going to visit a cloud guru, the leader in learning for cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. They have hundreds of courses and thousands of hands-on labs. Go get certified, go get hired, and get learning at cloudguru.com. It's been a busy week in the Kretschmar household. I'll tell you what. You've accomplished something that I have thought about doing a, a, a number of times, and that is 
I, I inherited, I think much like you did, a set of Hughes lights that my wife had at her office with its little Hue hub. And it's not great. I don't like having a separate piece of equipment pulling power. And I think there's a way I could get rid of that sucker. So I, I know you did a lot of things this week, but one of them, I believe, was you eliminated the Hughes hub from your Hue lights. Absolutely. Yeah. So as part of the Zigbee fridge temperature sensor stuff, I bought myself one of these Sonoff CC2531 Zigbee sticks, USB sticks that goes into my home assistant box. Uh, with Proxmox, I, it was a very easy pass through. You just plug the thing in and then click uh, add USB device and it just shows up in home assistant. That bit couldn't have been easier. But I was finding that the range from the, the Sonoff stick was pretty terrible. I'm talking 10, 12 feet terrible. Not good at all when it's in the basement. Yeah. So I sort of thought to myself, aren't these Philip Hue bulbs that I have already got 10 of in the house? Because uh, when I emigrated, I bought at Black Friday, I bought a 10 pack that came with the, you know, starter pack that came with a hub. It was a pretty good deal, as I recall. I can't remember how much it was, but I remember thinking at the time, ah, oh, this isn't too bad. But anyway, I've, so I've got a bunch of Zigbee devices. And as part of the stuff I did for my dad's in England uh, last month, the guy behind my local bites told me that any permanently powered Zigbee device acts as a mesh repeater in the network. And I was like, I could use these lamps to increase the range of my little USB stick. So why don't I try unpairing from the Philips Hue app just one bulb? I'm going to try just one, see how it goes. Within a minute, I'd unpaired and repaired it with ZHA and Home Assistant. And I was like, whoa, that was easy. So I thought to myself, well, okay, you've done one bulb in one minute. Why don't you go and do the next bulb in the rear hallway that's just next to the fridge? And then you've got two in a row that are then, and hopefully it'll be better for the, the fridge sensors. And then I thought, well, what, you've done two. <laughs> and i went all in and i did all 10 yesterday evening and the performance of the cheap sonoff cc2531 was good when i had two or three devices but by the time i got to the 10th bulb not so good i'm talking i'd press a button in home assistant and i'd wait and i'd wait and i'd be like did that register is this working? Are we here? Hello? Are we a light bulb? Are we a crisp packet? Are we a, a train? What are we? Oh, yes, that's right. We're a light bulb. I'm going to turn off now. And uh, yeah, so I've gone ahead and ordered one of these, uh, what's it called? A Conbi version two, based off a recommendation of one of the guys in Discord. So that's going to show up tomorrow. So maybe I'll report on that in the next episode. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been pretty pleased with how easy Zigbee, you know, D, the, the DHU hub migration thing. I've been pleased with how easy that was, to be honest with you. You know, I've been experiencing some delays on occasion, not all the time, not consistently, but I've been experiencing delays on my Z-Wave network. And I just kind of put the put it all together that, well, yeah, I've recently I've recently added a couple of more sensors and a couple of more powered smart plugs that do power monitoring. And so they're chatting more over Z-Wave. And Z-Wave isn't super high bandwidth. And hmm, that's interesting. I kind of just assumed it was my Pi. Which controller do you use? I don't remember what it's been branded as, but it's based on the Sigma Designs Z-Wave USB adapter. And I've been pretty happy with it because it's got a big old antenna on it. And so it gets pretty good range. And then like Zigbee, 
each Z-Wave device also that's powered acts as a repeater. And so I didn't even really stop to consider that maybe I've overloaded my network. I've got I've I've got 14 Z-Wave nodes now, which doesn't seem like a ton to me. But after hearing your experience, maybe I am kind of in the range. Maybe I maybe I need a more robust controller. Yeah, I would say with the the chatty devices in particular that are doing, you know, an update every second or or so. That's going to chew through the bandwidth that's available pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, not to fanboy a bunch more about Matter, because it's not even here yet. But this is something I hope Matter solves, because Matter is an IP-based protocol. And a couple of things that are nice about that is it means you could route it over an IP network, where you could have a lot more bandwidth, right? You could you could do that. But additionally, uh, a lot of devices already have Thread radios built in, and pretty much all the vendors are going to use Thread as the channel to communicate. And that has pretty good bandwidth, too, compared to what we're used to. I hope we start to see more vendors support it. Uh, Amazon just kind of reaffirmed their commitment this week as we're recording that they're that they're all in and that they're going to use Thread and they're going to support Matter with the Echo devices. So my hope is to ride this out for like another year and a half, two years, and then switch over to Matter-based devices for pretty much all this stuff. Could be just a dream, though. Cynical old Alex over here doesn't believe a word of it. I know. I don't think Matter's going to solve anything. It's just going to be yet another standard maybe i'll be wrong hopefully i'm wrong i hope but i i don't know you know who's getting me all hyped is paulus from home assistant like the last couple of live streams he's been talking about it and he makes it he made an analogy that kind of worked for me he said you can think of matter as what usb was for pc peripherals back in the early aughts in the 90s you remember when we had like colored a colored green and purple for ps2 and and printers had different types of connectors, and they had SCSI on the Mac, and and then USB came along, and it was like a minimum base set of standards of connectivity that everything supported, and then vendors would build on top of that, and they will just like that with Matter as well. But it, you kind of just at least had a few fundamentals that everybody agreed on with USB, and it, it really took things to the next level when it comes to plugging devices into your computer. And he thinks, and I hope he's right, that that's what Matter will be for IoT devices in the home. As long as we don't end up with a USB-C style USB implementation, <laughs> yeah. then we'll be okay. Yeah, something tells me it's going to be a lot more like USB-C, Alex. Huh. Well, that's a pretty good motivation for me to actually get off my duff and get my Zigbee radio set up. Even if I don't have many Zigbee devices, I could get rid of my Hughes bridge, save a little power. Okay, so while we're kind of getting close to it, you know we got to talk about it. You can almost feel it in the air, Black Friday. It's like a holiday for you. And uh, I know you're always getting ready to shuck drives. For those of you who maybe are new to the show and you don't know, this is what Alex loves to do. He loves to get a great price on like a large external drive because, you know, sometimes they'll put some real monsters in there. And then you shuck the external case and you load it up in your file server or something like that. So I imagine you must be getting prepared. Here's my methodology, right? Okay. When I emigrated, I purchased about 10, 10 terabyte hard drives. And they were all purchased on the same week from, you know, the three or four different Best Buys that we have in Raleigh because it was a limit of two or three per customer. So I was like, screw that. I'm just going to go and drive to the next one and buy two more over there. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned about the bathtub curve. Uh, for those that don't know what that is, it, typically a drive will fail either right at the beginning of its life or right at the end of its life, you know, be that three, four, five, six years, whatever it is. But given that these drives have been exposed to the same environment 
you know, they've all been in the same case, the same temperatures. They've been exposed to the same, uh, you know, manufacturing potential problems. They've all got the same firmwares, et cetera, et cetera. The chances if one or two go, that all 10 go seems higher to me than if I was to spread it out. Yeah, you're definitely going to, if you have one failure, you're probably going to have a couple failures at least. At least, yeah. So what I'm doing to kind of mitigate that is my primary media server, like I say, has has 10 drives in it. Two are used for a ZFS mirror. One is used for snap rate parity, which leaves me seven drives for actual data. Um, I've got a mixture now of 10 terabytes and 12 terabytes in there. So it's somewhere in the region of 70 to 80 terabytes of raw actual usable storage. So I'm not really hurting for space, but I've kind of set a benchmark of 200 bucks per drive as my kind of line in the sand to say, right, I'm not spending more than 200 per whatever size drive I can buy for that. That's what I'll buy this year. And obviously there are some considerations with that because with ZFS, you have to have the same size drives. Uh, Mismatched drives, you will lose a couple of terabytes here, a couple of terabytes there if you're not careful. Um, And with SnapRaid as well, the parity disk has to be as big or bigger than the largest data disk. So every time I change capacities, I've got to factor that into my mind. And so when I'm looking at what do I buy, I think, well, I have 10 drives. In my experience, hard drives last for about five years. Why don't I just buy two drives every year? And then that way, when I upgrade the parity drive, I actually also get a nice bump on my data disks as well. And then I can retire the existing drives to either go into my backup server, which is part of my home lab, or I can just wipe them and sell them on eBay for a few pennies. Now this year, I was able to pick up a couple of 14 terabyte easy stores from Best Buy for $200 a pop. Wow, that's great. Now these are three and a half inch drives. Yeah, well, I mean, they come, it's just, it's just really annoying, to be honest. I, I wish they would just sell these drives without the USB casing on them, but they don't. So, hey, here we are. What happens is you buy a retail box from Best Buy, and it has a big plastic shell around the drives with a USB uh, to SATA conversion drive and a power supply. And I've got to imagine there's quite a few dollars worth of extra cost in assembling these things putting them in a nice fancy case with a power supply, etc. Uh, why not just pass the saving on to me and say, look, you know, this is a drive that was destined for an easy store. Have a have it, but, you know, it's 20% cheaper than the retail model or something. I don't know. There's got to be a business reason, right? Somebody who, somebody out there listening must know. Let us know, selfhoster.show slash contact. Why won't they just sell us these drives directly? <laughs> I think it probably boils down to the fact that they, they know that the warranty claims are going to be less from people that have shucked drives. Because, you know, you, you've got to take a few guitar picks and, and break some of the plastic tabs open. And it, it can be, if you've not done it before, quite a, an intimidating process. You're like, oh, I've got $200 on my desk in front of me. I don't want to break it. I've heard a conspiracy. What I've been told is that they are drives that for some reason they suspect have lower quality to them. Like maybe the boards had QA issues or or something like that. So they have the data that shows them that external drives don't run for as many hours as their internal drives do. And so they fail less. So they still think they're good enough for those use cases. So they package them up and they sell them off. 
And they figure it's good enough because those users generally will run them for 80% less time than the people that have them built in, so they'll never notice. I've heard that, but I don't know if that's true. I mean, we're, not, we're never going to know if it's actually true or not, are we? But it would make sense. There'd be some MBA in an office somewhere worked out, how can we bin these drives that have failed a certain level of QA testing? Yeah. But you haven't really seen that bear out. I mean, you've used quite a bit of shucks drives, and it's not like you have a lot of drive failures. Touch wood? No. I, I haven't had... I've had one, actually, fail. But I think that was a result of putting it into the Helios 64 because the data pins the, snapped off and I had to solder in. It was a bit messy. Oh, yeah. So that was an actual Alex boo-boo, not a drive boo-boo. That's anecdotal, but your anecdotal uh, evidence would seem to suggest that it hasn't led to less reliable disks then, I would say. So far, so good. Yeah. But then, you know, you've got to factor in that how much is a, a 14 terabyte drive on Newegg right now? I'm going to go and look it up right now, real time. So a comparable 14 terabyte drive on Newegg, a Western Digital Ultra Star. 14 terabyte drive, three and a half inch drive, $280 without the shell on it versus $200 at Best Buy for one with the shell on it. And there are some warranty differences. This one has a five year warranty. I think the drives that come in the case only have three years. Factor that in as you will. But even so, I mean, once you do the, the calculations, over enough disks, you actually end up saving quite a bit of money. So even if a couple more fail, over time, you're still probably saving some cash. Now, do you find you're having to do many or any kind of tricks these days for the for the drives you're shucking? No, I don't. But that's simply because I built three years ago some uh, custom mm -hmm. SATA power connectors and I just snipped off the three volt rail in there so you know whatever comes from my power supply may well have a three volt rail but whatever i plug into the discs doesn't so it, it doesn't right. matter to me that is nice that is nice i'd like to mention our friends at a cloud guru have the linux web services course learn the various software tools and utilities used to configure web services on a linux host you'll find out what the different use cases are for apache squid nginx You'll learn how to set up virtual hosts, proxies, when to use a reverse proxy, and how to manage SSL and load balancing. You'll also get some insights in Apache metrics and the differences between Apache and Nginx. We'll have a link in the show notes to this course, or go to a cloudguru.com and search for Linux Web Services, a cloudguru.com, and the course Linux Web Services. So new drives, of course, mean that it's time to start figuring out where to plug stuff in and rebuild servers and you know just generally get my ducks in a row right sure so before i went to england i threw in the new motherboard the asrock rack motherboard that i wrote the blog post about and i mentioned on the show it looked really good i think we talked about it for a bit and i almost wanted to order one <laughs> yeah well unfortunately i've discovered what i think is a, a quite a big flaw in that motherboard uh-oh yeah, it's to do with how the PCIe lanes get shared out. So it doesn't sound like a big deal, except for the fact that I want to have about three or four different NVMe M.2 drives in there, as well as a PCIe U.2 NVMe drive as well, plus my HBA card. So by the time I've done that, I've used up quite a lot of PCIe lanes. And the real kicker was I tested something called PCIe bifurcation. And what that means is I can take the 16x slot and split it into three or four different slices. 
So I could take, I have a PCIe card that has four M.2 slots on it. And I can take my 16X basically graphics card slot and turn that into four M.2 slots. In this case, it was actually only three because of how the lanes worked. So when I did all the testing before I went to England, I plugged everything in and it all worked. And I was like, oh, brilliant. I can use this motherboard in my server, replacing one that had a lot more PCIe lanes that was a dual Xeon, etc., etc. Trouble was, I didn't actually put something in the fourth and final PCIe slot. Until now? What happened? Until now. So I, before I went to England, I did that. And uh, I noticed that <laughs> yeah. one of the NVMe drives wasn't showing up Uh-oh. as part of my ZFS mirror that I have for my Docker app data. And uh, I was like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I'll deal with it when I get back. Turned out, when you put something into that final slot, the PCIe switch inside the motherboard turns that first slot from a 16 to an 8x slot, which means that bifurcation doesn't work. And that took me all day to figure that out. Right, and it's not like there's um, not like there's a little LED light that comes on that says, by the way, bifurcation has been disabled. <laughs> like you just got to really know how that motherboard works to figure that out. So you must have assumed everything from hardware failure to firmware issues. Was, was it digging through the motherboard manual where you finally put it together? Yeah, I actually had to go and look at the flipping schematic of the motherboard <laughs> chipset layout. Oh, man. <laughs> it was only, honestly, once I plugged... So I, I, I went back to my Apple Genius Bar training and unplugged everything and was like, right, I'm going to do a minimum viable system. Right, if I put something in this slot, does it work? If I put something in that slot, does it work? If I, and right. everything on its own worked. It was only when I put something in the final slot and I was like, oh, no. And then did you try taking that thing in the final slot and putting it in its own slot and see if it works on its own? Yeah, yeah it did. Yeah, that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. <laughs> and then I was just like, shit, this means, this means that there's a bug in the BIOS or there's something wrong with how the you know, PCIe routing works. So then I went and read the manual for far too long and figured it out. And I was like, oh, crap. So, I mean, it's still a good motherboard, right? It's, yeah, uh, it's kind of an edge case. Yeah, but I mean, there's only three PCIe slots on the damn thing anyway, because it's a micro ATX board. Yeah. So would it have killed them to put an extra few lanes on it? I know the platform's capable because my consumer level board has enough lanes to have two PCIe slots and two M.2 slots and four M. What I'm trying to say is they've cheaped out somewhere and... It's just a frustrating place to cheap out on a server-grade motherboard. Yeah, you would think that's just it. That is just it. it like, if there was going to be a, a situation where you end up using or needing as much PCI possible, it, it's probably more likely to be in a server scenario than pretty much any desktop scenario except for gaming machines. <laughs> and the upshot is, right, I've gone from, instead of having a 2-terabyte MVME mirror ZFS mirror for all my Docker app data. I've gone down to a single ZFS drive, two terabyte NVMe drive. It's backed up to my backup server. So if anything happens, which funny story, I accidentally wiped one of the drives, uh, one of the two terabyte drives that had a couple of VMs on it and my home assistant install on it. Oh no. As part of my troubleshooting, because I saw another PCIe NVMe drive pop up and I was like, that's it. 
why isn't ZFS seeing it? I'll just try wiping the partition table. Like, that's going to work. <laughs> oh, no. So your home assistant was down for a while. Yeah, it was down for about a day. Yeah. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. And then well, it's a good test because I was able to test the backups of several different things. You know, I use yeah. Syncoid to replicate to my local backup. And really, it just vindicated why I have an on-site backup as well as off-site. Because restoring the three, 400 gigabytes over the LAN, over gigabit, was an hour. Whereas doing it from my dad's in England would have taken me weeks. Yeah. It's not complete just having one, but having both, that's really where I feel comfortable. And you're yeah. right. It's, oh man, oh, I can't even imagine how stressed I would be if I wiped out Home Assistant because it, it kind of, it's kind of become integral to how the RV functions these days. Mm-hmm. So it would be like systems are offline and everything's running on manual mode. I don't know. Well, we had motion <laughs> oh, sensor man. lights in the kitchen and I walked in the kitchen in the evening. I was like, why aren't the damn lights turning on? <laughs> oh, and then the, the conversation with the wife has to be pretty awkward too. Like that's. Oh, she knew something was up. I think she calls it a nerd rage. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Of course. She must have been, she must have been aware something was going down just from that. But you know, I just like, uh, cause it, it's not, it's, it's the the house isn't working. There's that factor, which is embarrassing. Then there's the fact that you're the one that set it all up so it operates like that. And then there's the fact that you're the one that just broke the very thing that you set up that the whole house depends on to operate. <laughs> because I wrote a new partition table on a drive. Why yeah. would I do that? It's one of those things you do it in the moment and you're like, ah, be fine. You reboot and then it says ZFS pool, Intel two terabyte NVMe not found. You're like, oh no. Oh no. Because you know instantly that that's just the rest of the evening gone yeah oh yeah that that is such a sinking feeling and and it's it's like okay i have backups but in that very moment like it's all on those backups you know are they up to date (laughs) yeah no actually a couple of them weren't so my red hat irc bouncer that i used to get on the red hat vpn and stuff like that the last backup of that that i had was actually from july so i had to uh lose three or four months worth of history there with irc and stuff like that which was a bit frustrating because quite often when i'm working a support case for a customer or something um tip bits will come through irc when i'm talking to the support engineer and it's actually a very useful resource and i've lost four months of that now so let that be a lesson to you kids make sure your backups are current we should have like a tagline at the outro every episode and go check your backups because you and I have both been there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And thank God for the Home Assistant Google Drive integration. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just import a new Home Assistant image into Proxmox using a script that's on GitHub. So it takes literally a minute and then apply the uh, full restore using the Google Drive backup plugin. And it's as if nothing happened. It's just amazing. That's sweet. That's nice to know it's so easy to get working on Proxmox. I do want to try that someday. Backblaze.com slash SSH. Get peace of mind knowing your files are backed up securely in the cloud with Backblaze. If you have it on your laptop and your PC, and maybe you have it on a NAS, that's essentially only having one copy. That's what I love about this offer from Backblaze. You get a free trial, no credit card required. Unlimited computer backup for Macs and PCs. Just $7 a month. Your documents, your music, your photos, your videos, your drawings, your projects, all your data. And the nice thing, too, you can restore from anywhere. Not only is that just handy, but maybe one day even necessary. And if you've got a lot of data, they also offer a restore by mail option. It's a pretty slick system. 
And if you're worried about getting files from your phone, don't worry, they got you covered there. And if you want extended retention, they got you covered for two bucks a month more right there too. Over 50 billion files have been restored for Backblaze customers. You know it works. So go get a fully featured, no credit card required trial at backblaze.com slash SSH. That's right, backblaze.com slash SSH. You know, that lets them know where you came from and it, it supports the show. Go there, check it out. You know Backblaze is legitimate. You know they are the best in the business. And now it's a great opportunity for you to support the show and get a free trial with no credit card required. It's a win-win. Backblaze.com slash SSH. So it seems like a lot of reworking things. And you were telling me before the show that you kind of use that opportunity to get your documentation game up. And you may have kind of put together what you could almost call a self-hosted Notion setup. Yeah, I think we'll cover this in a lot more detail probably next episode. I'm still working out some of the rough corners, but the rough gist is this. I've been using a documentation app called Obsidian recently as part of this whole new Zettelkasten, uh, Rome Research, Foam in VS Code. Uh, Don't forget Emacs Org Mode. Emacs Org Rome, which I have used for a lot of our show notes, actually, and I still yeah. love, but... Emacs is just a pain, isn't it? I'm sorry, audience. I'm sorry. <laughs> Send your hate mail to alan at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Hey, to be fair, you gave it a legit go. I did, yeah. I mean, it's it's just it just breaks a bit too often when I want to sit down uh, and take notes, unfortunately. Oh, that's not so, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Say la vie. So, yes, I'm using Obsidian, which is a, a free, I think it's open source. And Notion, I should say, is like the the new game in note taking it's an all-in-one note taker where you can embed embed spreadsheets and wikis and obviously notes and drawings and it's a monster electron app and it also has a web service and it has native ios and android apps and it promises to be what like several different note taking apps are all in one place and of course it has team integration and business stuff and all of that but it's a service it's not something you can run yourself and you know as well as i do that you probably have fragments of notes in about eight different apps that you've tried over the last 10 years. Yep. And uh, getting the data out of these proprietary services is just very difficult, you know? Um, and the thing that I really love about Obsidian, there's lots of others coming up as well. There's one called LogSec, uh, S-E-Q. Go and have a look at that if you're interested. But the thing I love about Obsidian is it does everything in Markdown files. There you go. Boomsies. So is it storing them just all on the file system locally? In plain text on your disk, yep. So yeah. it really even has Joplin beat in that regard because for some reason, and it, this pisses me off because Joplin is so close, uh, it scrambles the file names in Joplin. Like if you've ever looked at the plain text files on disk from Joplin, it's just, you know, it's 32 characters of complete gibberish and... Oh, it's so close. Joplin is so close. But if they fix that one thing, uh, they're like ID, database ID file names or something. But it sounds like you're kind of cooking something that's a little more complete even. That's like web component, search component, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. The really nice thing about Notion is that there's a little checkbox you can select in the corner that says, make this note public. And when I was working on my photography article for Ars Technica a few months ago, I really gave Notion a full try just to get the experience. And I've got to say, it was fantastic, actually. Oh, I mean, okay. apart yeah. from the fact that it, my data is now hostage in that system, 
Um, the fact that I could share notes with, you know, the, the editors at ours and they could, you know, make comments. And it was like, it was like Google Docs, but on steroids because I could, it was, it's hard to explain, but I really, really enjoyed the experience. No, I could definitely see that, especially in, in, in working, you know, with like a, an outlet, like publishing yeah. for sure. So something like that would be great. And I could version things and it, it had an iOS app and, you know, lots of good reasons. So I'm pairing Obsidian with, uh, you know, it just creates a directory of markdown files. Uh, I've mentioned this on the show before, but MKDocs just reads a directory of markdown files to create a self-hosted wiki. But to connect the two in the middle, you probably want some kind of a continuous integration build system thing. And for that, I've been trying out something called Drone connected with Git-T lately. Uh, and I'll go, I'll go into full details probably in the next episode but definitely in a blog post over the next two weeks explaining how I go about connecting the two. I've actually already written the first part of that blog post series, um, which is how to connect MK Docs and Drone CI together. Uh, so the next part will be how to, how I use a couple of plugins in MK Docs to really make some of the cool stuff in Obsidian, like the wiki linking and the backlinking stuff, all kind of work as part of the website as well. It's really slick. I've been using it for the last few days since the weekend to document which hard drives in which slot, which Zigbee button I've put in which room, all this kind of stuff. And I am really, for the first time, feeling like this might be a long-term wiki solution that I can use, my wife can actually use. I'm, I'm really pretty jazzed on this one, to be honest. Hmm. Well, then I look forward to hearing more about it. You gave me a little uh, demonstration before the show, and it is very cool. And what I like about the entire pipeline is you keep the data on your land the entire time. So it is something I could replicate and and use off-grid, which is something I'm always looking for. Absolutely, yeah. And you've got the website component, so you could pull it up on your phone, where you, wherever you are. You know, a lot of these note-taking apps, Emacs is a perfect example. Doing that on mobile is just a train wreck, you know. Uh, and Obsidian has an iOS app, as I mentioned. I think they're working on a Google Play version of the app as well. And uh, obviously, I've got Obsidian on the desktop, so I can do my editing in a real first-class editor, unlike some kind of random wiki software, which is honestly where things like TiddlyWiki have fallen down for me, as the editor just doesn't do it. I still use TiddlyWiki, and I've got a lot of useful information in there that I'm migrating over. Mm. But uh, the long-term review of TiddlyWiki is my wife doesn't use it because it's putting images in. It's just... I had to create an entry in the wiki of how to use the wiki to add images to the wiki. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Not a good indictment. When you were showing it to me earlier, I noticed that you had a plugin to generate really quick and nice looking markdown tables. So is there a pretty healthy like community plugin ecosystem around Obsidian? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there was an episode of the Connected podcast on Relay FM where one of the guys goes into basically how he's creating his own basically his own editor inside obsidian to work with his own workflow that publishes posts and does all sorts of crazy stuff oh wow i would honestly liken the community plugin ecosystem to emacs it started off as just an editor but it's very quickly becoming a bit of a cult and lots of people are writing stuff that will run all sorts of crazy stuff inside obsidian and i've I, i'm only two or three days in at this point um, so I can only imagine how in a couple of months I'll be uh, doing all sorts of wacky, wild, and wonderful stuff. And Obsidian is 100% free for personal use. 
no account required. Um, you get access to the plugins and the API. There are a couple of paid versions, which I imagine is also kind of a nice way to support development. Uh, you get access to like early builds. Um, and then there's also a commercial version. And even there, it's it's 50 bucks. Like it's where the pricing is really is really fair. I like this model. Um, and I've heard people that you and I both really respect in our community talk really highly of Obsidian. But it does definitely strike me as a power tool, Alex. Like it's not it's not a casual notes app something like Simple Note is or the notes app that's built into your phone OS. It's like it's a power tool of for notes. If you want it to be. I mean it it could just be completely atomic, unlinked set of markdown files. That would be nice still. The magic of it though is if you do start connecting everything together, you know, I've got a page here that has all of my Zigbee buttons listed, but then I connect to a separate page elsewhere that then says, you know, that Zigbee button uh, is an IKEA trad free. And I connect to another note about how to set up an IKEA trad free button, not as part of the original Zigbee note, but as its own separate atomic thing that just lives in its own space, but has a backlink to the Zigbee stuff. It's, it's kind of hard to explain, but uh, this, this whole, Zettelkasten linking notes and organic research type thing is very popular in academia, but I'm finding it very useful for technical documentation as well. Linode.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. Linode's where we host everything, and Linode's also my lab in the cloud. If I'm trying something out, if there's a project that we want to evaluate, or also if we want to have something to just send the audience to go bang on for a bit. I build that on Linode. I mean, my ISP's connection's not up for that job anyways, and it's not like I'm going to go rack something in a colo somewhere like I did back in the early aughts. No, I'm going I'm going to go to Linode, and you can too. You can get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account. That's Linode's way of saying you can really try it out. It's not like, you know, 15 bucks that you're going to use for a little bit and just get first impressions. $100. You can really try out Linode. And see why we use it. See why we put our production software up there, too. It's not just R&D. It's production as well. Go try out Alma Linux and Rocky Linux if you're evaluating different CentOS releases. There's all kinds of things you can do up there. So many opportunities to learn. And they have great add-ons like S3-compatible object storage, cloud firewalls, DDoS protection, VLAN support. And they're even rolling out bare metal servers. How about that? The best part, though? The pricing 30 to 50% cheaper than the major hypervisors out there that just want to lock you into their crazy custom platforms anyways. Plus, Linode has excellent performance, 11 data centers around the world, tons of great guides, and the best customer service in the business. So sign up today and support the show. Linode.com slash SSH. That's Linode.com slash SSH. Here we are in November, and what does a new month mean? It means a new Home Assistant release. Yeah, it does. Just when you got the last one installed, hopefully, 90 contributors, over a thousand pull requests. It's, there's a lot going on now with this project. 67,000 lines added, twenty nine, basically 30,000 lines of code removed. Uh, they call it a big release. A lot of Hacktoberfest contributions were in this one. Uh, over a thousand different contributors to this release just the core too not the documents the front end stuff just the core home assistant release had a thousand over a thousand contributors wow i mean that makes me wonder how it even worked before i mean think about like managing that 
just going through it and making sure all that stuff's of certain quality. It's a heroic workload. No wonder Frank's a bit grumpy sometimes, eh? <laughs> you know, he seems like <laughs> such a nice guy on the streams. Uh, yeah, he, he is shared really. It. I think sometimes we paint him in a bad light, but uh, like you say, when you see him actually in person and talking on the streams, very articulate guy, obviously very smart. So, Yeah, he, he told a story that, you know, really demonstrated how much he really does care about the user experience. Uh, so, you know, they rolled out that new Tuya integration that they worked with the Tuya cloud folks. And there were some problems, and people are having a, a rough time of it. And so Frank sees that, and he goes to his local stores, and he fills up shopping carts full of Tuya-enabled devices. Uh, crazy things like little one-off buttons, um, cubes, cameras, doorbells, all different kinds of lights, Christmas decorations, all sorts of stuff, and brings it all home and sits there like just a champ and gets through all kinds of compatibility issues and just adds tons of devices. So some of that work is landing in this release as well as a fix for time zone changes. There was a bug that caused like a lot of CPU usage when the time zone change kicked in, which has already happened to our friends in Europe. They did release a hot fix uh, mid cycle. That's why you may have seen an additional update come down. Uh, but this includes that hot fix as well. So you might want to do that. And you'll like this. Speaking of links, Alex, you can now give devices links out to like the WLED page for configuration, or if it's a device that needs a cloud configuration, it'll link right to it. Or if the device has like a local control panel, now you won't have to go figure out what its IP is by searching your DHCP logs like I do. Home Assistant will just generate a link to the management UI if it knows it, and uh, you can just find it right there in the device screen, which is nice. The icon picker has landed, and it's pretty great. They did a good job. That is legit a very low-priority feature, but boy, does it make a big difference. Yeah, and you know, if you, if you haven't done this yet, listener, uh, Alex and I love this, but take a minute some, you know, some evening when you're you know, you're, you're kind of watching TV, but it's not something you're super into. I don't know. Whenever you got some downtime and go through and add icons to your, en- you know, to your entries and get everything with its own custom icon, what kind of light it is, heaters, fans. It, it really makes it nice and it makes it easier to sort through your stuff at a quick glance. And they've really done a good job of making this thing sort through like over 6,000 icons in just seconds. It's super impressive. Just a couple other things I'll mention. Uh, they've added support for web RTC video streams. Home Assistant now will recognize a WebRTC stream as a camera source, but there is a catch. It's only active when your browser is viewing it and pulling it in because it's actually your browser that is establishing the WebRTC PDP video stream. But you can you can embed it and have it in a card, and Home Assistant can help facilitate that. An example of a device where this is actually kind of useful is the Nest Doorbell. actually provides video via WebRTC, and so now you can pull that into Home Assistant if you got a a Nest doorbell. Well, that's pretty cool. I also saw something about the uh, Home Assistant Amber that's coming up. Yeah, man. Well, they so it's funded. Um, oh, good. Yeah. They had about 2,500-ish backers, uh, raised half a million dollars. They were having and are having some problems sourcing their PoE chip, so they're switching to a different chip. But there are some first hands-on of the prototype. It's bigger than I expected, but it looks really good. And there's some really special things that the home assistant crew did on the board. Like they, they drove little, they like hand drew it's printed on there, but it looks like it's hand drawn, but I'm sure it's not 
to the to like different chips on the board and they wrote on there what they do in this really cute little way so it's it's a really nice touch the home assistant amber is looks like it's going to be a really nice piece of hardware to run home assistant and uh they uh i think i think they're pretty happy with the prototype so far and they uh They've shipped out to a couple of YouTubers to take a look at them. So if you search out on YouTube, you can find some hands-ons with the Amber. Yeah, I saw that. Maybe we need to up our YouTube game. We need to get our hands yeah. on some of this gear. You know, Paulus is in the California area. Maybe we just need to like take him out for beers or something. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they also made a big stink out of making sure everybody knew that next month's going to be the State of the Union on December 11th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. They say uh, it will be newsworthy, whatever yeah. that means. I'm going to try to make it. I'll try to make it and I'll let you know. Uh, there's, you know, a lot they say going in uh, to that release, which seems impossible since this one had so much. But I I really appreciate all of the hard work they're doing. They've also reorganized some of the entity screens and just a couple other nice little changes where if you are somebody out there that's actually using the automatically generated Home Assistant Lovelace dashboard, you're going to see some improvements there too coming your way. Yeah, those device categories are really nice. So rather than having every single parameter about a device listed under just one tab, it will separate out stuff like the battery percentage or the RSSI stuff that you really don't need to know most of the time uh, from like the main toggle switch, for example. That would be in its own category now. Really nice, small change, that one. Yeah, and uh, I actually still have just... I've been pushing it as far as I can. I am still using the auto-generated Lovelace dashboard on my Home Assistant Blue here in the studio. Really? How many yeah. millions of little circles do you have at the top of that thing? <laughs> <laughs> I should look. I should tell you. It's, it, there is some for sure. But I've been trying to stick with it. I almost broke this last week. I really did. But then they had this update, and I thought, well, I got to see this. Oh, actually, there's no circles along the top. On the Now they are. In fact, they've, they've this part of the update. Only two of them are now on the auto-generated dashboard, and they're in a different spot now. Totally laid out a little bit differently. I remember I disabled the auto-generated dashboard when I added my Unify integration, and it showed me every single Wi-Fi device that had ever connected to my Wi-Fi network in yeah. that view at the top, and I was like, oh, screw this. Yeah, my dashboard's currently telling me that the uh, Office HP OfficeJet Pro in my office has 70% ink, and it's telling me that for each one of the ink cartridges and i Useful. just don't yeah yeah <laughs> you need to know that right now <laughs> by the way it's not currently printing just so you know <laughs> okay all right yeah, i was worried well as always a big thanks to our site reliability engineers the subscribers that make this show possible we really do appreciate every single one of you and you know the more of you there are the less ad reads that we have to do you know um so a big thanks to all of our sres yeah and they also get an extended post show. Don't forget, they get a little more show. Selfhoster.show slash SRE. Oh, yeah. My dad's looking at buying a new house, and uh, he's going to be buying one out in the boonies, potentially. And so we're going to get your thoughts on Starlink in the post show this week. Oh, yeah. We can talk about that. Also, we'd love to have you email us, contact us. I don't know. Feedback us. Give us your thoughts. Maybe there's a project you love or you have uh, feedback on something we talked about today. You can go to selfhoster.show slash contact. That is the place to get in touch with us. And find me on Twitter. I am at Chris LAS. Is feedback a verb? Feedback is. Yeah, I yeah. think it can be. You know, apparently it is now. What are you doing when you send back feedback? You're feedbacking, right? <laughs> 
okay. I'm not sure that's how that works. <laughs> you can go and feedback me on Twitter at Ironic Badger, <laughs> and the show is at Self Hosted Show. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Oh, and links to everything we talked about at selfhosted.show slash 57.